Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and today we are going to get into some of the economics uh, of the crypto space, uh, specifically in the NFT world and non-fungible tokens. Um, that's because I'm joined by Tara Fung, the co-creator, co, excuse me, co-founder and CEO of CoCreate. Um, hi, Tara. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Yeah, it's great to see you. Um, just as I said, um, we'll, we'll get into this in a bit, but I find um, the economics, like the crypto economic question that you're trying to tackle really interesting um, because if people haven't thought about it, um, you know, what you a lot of what a lot of projects do in crypto is they will issue a coin or they'll, they'll raise initial money somehow, like an NFT will drop some NFTs and hope to sell them. But that's a tough model to sustain. Um we saw with Ethereum, for example, the Ethereum Foundation sold um, Ether to the public in 2014, um, raised Bitcoin, and then like promptly like lost half of it because Bitcoin crashed, and then they spent all their money. And uh, it's it's been an ongoing kind of question for like how do folks in crypto, what's the what's the revenue model there, you know? And so I, I'm really excited to to get into that with you. Um, but first, I'd love to just kind of talk about where you're where you're coming from and how you made your way into crypto. And um, I saw that you went to Harvard Business School, so uh, maybe we could start there, and you could kind of give us a, a brief overview of how you uh, how you made your way there. Yeah, happy to. So I'm from a small town in rural North Carolina. Um, growing up, it was me, my mom, and my sister. And my mom worked in churches um, and for a nonprofit, and so did not meet the criteria of most people going to Harvard Business School. Um, and I think what happened along the way is I got really lucky, right? Like I had people in my life that um, these one-off conversations that just completely changed the trajectory of my life. I remember the first one was I was speaking with someone who was a local representative in North Carolina and he just made a sidebar comment that international business opens doors. Um, and I was always a really curious kid. And I always wanted to figure out how the world works. And that's really been the guiding or North Star of my career is just trying to figure out how the world works and how things come together. And so I was like, oh, well, I'll study international business and economics so I can figure out how the world works. Because um, another cousin of mine told me, well, economics teaches you how to approach problems. And I was like, well, I don't know what I want to do with my life, but I know I want to be able to approach problems and come up with an answer. And so those two things led me to University of South Carolina for undergrad, not elite at all, very much a state school. It was what we could afford. Um, I was on scholarship there. And it was at University of South Carolina that one of my professors took me under his wing and he said, hey, you know, you should really think about doing an MBA someday. 
And you should think about going to a top tier school because I see that as something that you could aspire to and, and reach. And he had gone to Harvard undergrad and gotten his PhD at Harvard. And he was like, you should think about going to a place like Harvard. And that was the first time that anyone spoke to me that that is something that I could reach. Like, I remember actually when I got into Harvard, um, my mom was sad. She was like, oh, you've got a good job. You don't want to give up a good job and take on student debt. And I was like, mom, I'm pretty sure this is a safe investment. Like, yes, <laughs> this is definitely going to be expensive, but I'm pretty sure this is a good investment. And so it's those like one-off conversations. For me, it was the specific professor who planted the seed in my mind. And after I'd worked for a few years, I recalled that. And I was like, you know what? It feels like now is the time to try for it. I began my career in the German automotive industry, working for the parent company of Mercedes-Benz figured out I don't like cars enough to do that the rest of my life. And so I was like, well, now's a good time to think about using a graduate degree and an MBA to springboard into another career. And that thought of, hey, aspire for Harvard came back up. Um, the crazy thing was I, not coming from an elite background, I didn't know anyone who had ever gone to a school like that. I actually don't think I knew anyone who had an MBA um, in my, in my family. And so I didn't do the things that you're supposed to do when applying for grad school. Like I didn't have a coach. I didn't have anyone checking my essays. I literally sent off my application the morning of my wedding because I was still checking stuff. And so I had my <laughs> bridesmaids around me and I was like reviewing my essays, found a typo and sent it off. And all of my bridesmaids thought I was crazy. Um, and it was the only school I applied to because there are a few rounds of interviews. And I thought, well, you know what, if I don't get into Harvard on the first round, then I can go to backup schools for the second round. And with the wedding planning, I honestly didn't have time <laughs> to do multiple applications. <laughs> and thankfully it worked out. And um, it was one of the most formative experiences um, in my life personally, as well as an incredibly influential part of my career. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, you don't often hear about people just kind of one-offing it to Harvard Business School while you're planning a wedding <laughs> and then pulling it all off. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, Thank you. You mentioned you have a sister. Is she older or younger? I have an older sister. Um, she's about three years older than me, and her and I live uh, in completely different worlds. Uh -huh. So she is an elementary school teacher. She um, teaches ESL or, or English for those who is a second language, sure. um, has four children, is married to an electrician, like coaches T-ball, lives 10 minutes from where we grew up, and has no idea what I just wrote. <laughs> Did you guys get along when you were growing up? We really did. So um, it was funny that I was the younger sister, but we had this dynamic where in a lot of ways, it felt like she was the younger sister. Like she would come to me for help or guidance. I was always very, you know, I would say determined um, and she could be more deferential. And so um, we really got close when she was a senior in high school and I was a freshman. We both played volleyball quite competitively um, and we were on the same team uh, that year because we uh -huh. were both um, in high school. And then she went off to college and we we stayed really close um, since, you know, probably the last 10 years when I've moved around a lot and 
have become very career focused. We don't get to see each other as much as I would like anymore. Um, but we actually just got back from a weekend with me and my husband and her and her husband and her four kids um, in the mountains, which was, it's always great to see, to see them and spend some time with the family. Yeah, of course. It sounds like you guys had a tight unit. Do you, do you think that helped in your formative years of like what was to come and like being raised by your mom? Like has that sort of, you, do you think, influence the way you look at the world? A hundred percent. I was raised in the South um, in a very conservative religious environment. Um, my, my biological father passed away when I was an infant. And so whether or not my mom wanted to, she put in place a, a view of what a woman could be that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. She was the mechanic. She was the breadwinner. She was the person who was doing our laundry and taking care of the home. She was everything. And I remember feeling like, why is this so different in our house than what I see in other homes? Um, and there were times when she would say things like um, about a woman's role or the expectation of like women being not subservient to, but supportive of a man. And that didn't match the life she lived. And so honestly, that dichotomy gave me a view of, okay, so maybe it doesn't have to be this way. And she was an entrepreneur herself. Like she worked in churches and nonprofits. She had her own nonprofit. Um, and it was to help other women and families who were going through tough times, like the one she experienced when my father passed away. And so I was able to see her run her own business, which if I hadn't had that experience, I think a lot of the cultural norms that I was surrounded by of what a woman's place was supposed to be and what a woman was supposed to aspire to um, would have had a different impact on me. Um, and so I grew up thinking, mm -mm, I can do it. <laughs> I, I can put my mind and, and get to wherever I want to go. And I think that um, more determined nature was able to see a different outcome because of what I saw in our own home. Do you think that's where your curiosity comes from? Was that sort of like the springboard for it maybe? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, my sister and I, we could not be any more different and we were raised in the exact same home. And so um, there's always the question of what is innate versus what is learned and environmental. I think, I think I was just born to have this curiosity. Like I remember actually as a, uh, 10 year old, I learned that somewhere I was, I read a lot. I learned somewhere that your language or your mind begins to process languages differently once you hit 11. And so <laughs> if you wanted to learn a foreign language, it's better to do it before the age of 11. And I like went to my mom crying. And I was like, I have to start learning French now <laughs> or else I'm never going to be able to be fluent in it. The clock and is ticking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so like, and I was always trying to come up with trips we could go on and the ability, we, we weren't a family of means, but just figuring out ways to try to get abroad to see how different people live. And I think that was just that was just something that was born in me. My sister, I would drag her along because she was the older sister. And so if I wanted to go on the trip, I had to bring my big sister almost as a chaperone. And every single time we would come back from a trip, she'd be like, oh man, I never want to leave the U.S. again. And I'm like, how is that your takeaway? <laughs> that was awesome. So I think it was just that something I was born with. Um, you said your sister has no idea what you do now. Like, uh, So there hasn't been that 
time when she's come to you and, and said, all right, Tara, I need you to finally explain to me what an NFT is. <laughs> yeah, she hasn't. My mom actually came to me and she was like, so I think I want to invest in cryptos. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> I was like, first off, whatever you want, give me the money and I will do it on your behalf. I don't want you touching any of this because, you know, there's just, there's such a high bar for entry still um, in order of you know, not getting caught in a bad situation or not succumbing to fraud. Um, so she's asked me some questions and, and I initially got into crypto through an investment lens. Um, but my sister, no, she doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I find it now, um, this cycle anyway, compared to like 2017, 2018, I feel like there's a lot more general knowledge of crypto out there and just the general population. But I also think a lot of people are skeptical of it or only yeah. know about like how you can lose your money or you can get ripped off. And, and I think that's a real shame because um, I really hope that doesn't become the dominant narrative. Yeah, me too. And I think, you know, everyone says we're early, we're early. We really are. And so the tools and resources and the various like bumper lanes, if you will, they're going to get built. Um, that's going to come over time. And there are ways that you can get exposure um, that are very standard or secure. I think once you get into non-custodial um, crypto and Web3, that's where you really need to understand what you're doing. Um, you need to have confidence in whatever smart contract you're interacting with, that it's doing the thing it's saying it's doing, because it can say one thing and do another. And so that's where I think the bar is still really high and there's a long way we need to go before it's mass market. Um, but if you're just looking to get exposure to crypto assets, um, I think centralized exchanges are a great way to do that. And you don't have to have the same level of knowledge um, that you would within DeFi. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree. I tell people, yeah, go use Coinbase and then figure out how to open your own wallet, move yeah. your stuff off the exchange and have it in your wallet and like just be confident in that and then take it slowly. <laughs> exactly. It's slow and steady. And, you know, doing things incrementally uh, makes a ton of sense. Like whenever people would ask me, okay, how did you get started investing in crypto? I was like, one asset at a time right? Like initially for me, it was Bitcoin. And it made sense that Bitcoin was a version of digital gold because it was fixed supply and increasing demand. And there could only ever be so many Bitcoin. Um, and that made a lot of sense to me. And then it was Ethereum. And it was how, you know, Ethereum is the utility within the entire Ethereum uh, ecosystem that allows you to build all of these robust applications. And if you think that this ecosystem is going to grow, then you think the demand for Ethereum will grow because that's how you process transactions. And so for me, it was always very incremental, one asset at a time, as opposed to crypto. And now let's go all in and buy some random altcoin <laughs> yeah. tomorrow. Yeah, let's let's hand over all my crypto so I can earn 20% interest in some yeah. black box voodoo yeah. magic kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's the thing. Whenever something looks too good to be true, it probably is. And so recognize this is a gamble. Like I think gambling is allowed, right? Like if you want to gamble and place a bet, fine. Just know that you're doing that, right? right? Just know that there's probably an end to that game and you don't want to be the one caught. Um, and so if you're doing high risk stuff, just be open to the possibility that you might lose it all. Yeah. 
Okay, so I think I have this right. You you went to Daimler after college, didn't like cars enough to stay there, um, <laughs> then got into Harvard Business School, which you, your mom got sad. That's probably the only time that's happened in the history of the world. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and now, okay, so in, in at Harvard, like how did your how did your views change, or what what did it open up? You know, new vistas for you, or like what what? Tell me about that. Yeah, it really did. Um, it was an incredible experience. Both I was, I'm a nerd at heart. I was really excited to get back into the classroom after having worked for several years. I studied, um, like I mentioned, economics and international business in undergrad, but there's only so much that you can understand when business is an application centric field, right? And so being able to bring work experience back into the classroom and understand the theory at a different level was something I was really excited about and I got a ton out of. Um, everyone says you go to a place like Harvard for the network. Frankly, I undervalued that. I was like, sure, sure, sure. But I'm really excited to learn. I met some of my closest friends at Harvard. I really feel like I found my tribe there um, and we stay in touch to this day. Um, and so that for me was an unexpected upside. And then in terms of the opportunity set, I mean, it's just exactly what you would expect. It was incredible. As a student, you can reach out to basically any alumni and they will get on a call with you. Um, wherever they are, uh, you get you get doors opened that otherwise weren't wouldn't be open. And that for me was part of the draw as well. University of South Carolina, if I sent my resume in somewhere, they're not looking at that. It's going into the resume pile and it's probably never going to be viewed again. And um, I knew that if I had Harvard on my resume, it would open doors. And so I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my career, but I thought optionality would be a good thing. Yeah. And so that for me was something that I was hoping for and it definitely delivered on. I didn't go to Harvard or HBS um, as the business school is often called. I didn't go to HBS with the um, expectation that I would get into tech, honestly. You know, coming from German automotive, um, very different environment. Um, I didn't think of myself at, at that time as a technically adept person. And so it was kind of intimidating for me. But what I, what happened was I really fell in love with entrepreneurship and building things. And so I used the experience at HBS to transition into tech and initially into fintech because financial technology, they value MBAs, not all um, tech uh, industries do. And um, it was something where I thought my experience and what I had learned would be would be able to be utilized. And so I got into fintech and that then on down the road led me to crypto later on. And uh, what year are we talking? Is this before the financial crisis or after? So I graduated from HBS in 2016. So after. Okay. I graduated from undergrad in 2009 and then I did a one-year grad degree uh, through 2010. So that was where initially, as opposed to going to Daimler, I was supposed to join, and I can say this because I didn't, <laughs> I was supposed to join the CIA as an economic analyst out of um, my one-year grad program. And that was partially because a lot of the financial institutions that recruited um, at South Carolina, their their hiring had been cut back significantly with everything that was going on. 
um, ended up going to Daimler because the background check for the CIA took so long, mm. which I've had a polygraph at Langley. I thought it would be really fun. It is not fun. <laughs> not a fun experience at all, um, but got through it. But it's just, it took so long. And so I was waiting on the background check to be finalized. I wasn't supposed to leave the country or, or else your background check goes on hold. And so I looked for other, I moved to New York and became an au pair um, so that I could live in New York City because I'd never lived there before. Don't really like hanging out with kids all that much. So that was like the least fun part, but the being in New York was great. Um, and while I was waiting, I saw this job opening at Daimler and um, I speak German. And so I was like, oh, this would be a great, and it was a rotational program. So I was like, this will be a great opportunity to travel the world, to use German in a business setting. And it was until about four years in where I was realizing, I just don't see this for my future. Mm -hmm. And so then it was Harvard and then it was um, FinTech. And then over time it became crypto. Yeah. Let's go back to the CIA just for a second. What <laughs> what drew you to that? And uh, I'm congrats on passing the background check. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, apparently, I don't have sketchy friends. Um, so the thing that attracted me to the CIA, well, first off, they came and recruited on campus, which is hilarious. I'm like, really? That's how this goes? Um, and I was doing, a, so after undergrad, I got a full scholarship to do a one-year master's degree at South Carolina. And it was this interdisciplinary degree. It was like a third international business, a third international political systems, um, and a third international law. And so it was like, how do legal systems, political systems, and business systems interact internationally to compose the environment or landscape within which one operates? And that was a target program for the CIA because of the type of awareness and um, that it created. Um, and so they came on campus. Um, I went through like these full day of exercises with them. The uh, the person who was leading this international finance unit was there and he met with me and he was like, hey, I'd love for you to apply for an economic analyst role. When you apply, please send me an email. And he gave me his card. No one there has last names, by the way. Um, and he was like, please send me an email because we get so many applications a year, we actually can't see review them all. But if you send it to me, I'll pull it out of the pile and, and we'll process you through. It's a long background check, but you know, um, we'll see where it goes. And it was the background check took around eight months um, to complete. Uh, it involved, they gave me, I remember a single, I had just come back from a year abroad and they gave me a single sheet of paper with like 10 lines to say, list every single non-American um, you know. I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> like how antisocial do you think I am? <laughs> I only know 10 people after being abroad for a year. So that added some complexity um, or probably some additional time. But yeah, went through that whole process. It was a lot written. Apparently they interviewed a ton of people um, without telling me. And then I had to go to Langley for both the um, polygraph as well as an auditory test, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. Um, and when I was still waiting, I decided to apply to Daimler because yeah. uh, it was taking so long. And I reached out to the guy, um, the head of the unit at the CIA um, to let him know, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. He said, go ahead and apply. You don't know how much longer it's going to take. So we'll let you know when it's through and then hopefully it still works out. 
he also shared that they have so much um, fall off throughout their interview process because it is so long. People can't just yeah. put their lives on hold. Yeah. Um, and so unfortunately, or fortunately, it didn't work out. I'm not sure which one, but it would have been an interesting life experience for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, so around the time you're at Harvard, is that when you discovered Bitcoin or when was the first, uh, like what was well, your first exposure take... to crypto? Yeah, I did take a, a class called Managing the Financial Firm and we did, um, we had a case on Coinbase. So I was starting to get some exposure there, but nothing that like in any way caught my attention. Um, I remember during the 2017 timeframe, I had several friends who were part of the bull run um, and were sharing information with me. But again, I was like, honestly, I thought, oh, this is too deep of a well. I don't have time to go deep down the well and figure this all out. I'm just going to stay focused on what I'm working on. Um, and so it was not until really DeFi summer that I started getting into it. And initially it wasn't through DeFi. That just happened to be the time period. I um, joined a company called Alto IRA and Alto enables folks to utilize retirement funds to invest in alternative assets venture capital, private equity, private real estate, <clears throat> but also crypto. And um, they have a direct integration with Coinbase uh, so that you can buy, I think it's now up to 150 different tokens um, utilizing retirement funds. And the benefit is that there's some tax advantages associated with that. And so I don't invest in things I don't understand. I was now working for a company who one of our investment products was crypto. And I was like, if I'm going to be talking about this, I have to understand this. And so that was when I went deep down the rabbit hole of asset by asset, trying to work to understand what these are and what role they have to play in a diversified portfolio. And so it quickly morphed from, okay, you know, having a three to 5% portfolio allocation to BTC and ETH and maybe Sol or a few other assets makes sense as part of a diversified portfolio to, holy smokes, blockchains are going to fundamentally alter the way the world works and what is possible. <laughs> and I don't know what's going to happen and what's coming next, but all I know is I want to build on this new frontier. And I don't think that I could learn as much if I'm not doing this every day. Um, and so that was really this, the switch for me. Um, you got red pilled pretty hard. I did. I really did. And there was part of it that felt like imposter syndrome almost mm -hmm. because I'm not the person who's like, I bought BTC in 2013. Like I'm, that's not me, <laughs> but at the same time, um, what I've found to be really incredible is everyone within crypto and web three is self-taught because it's still so new. And so there is this openness, although people really put on a pedestal, those who have been involved in the space for a long time, there's also this openness to learning um, and recognition that everyone is just on, it, it's, they're somewhere on their journey. Mm -hmm. um, and that if this is gonna be successful, we need to welcome more people into this space. And so that's been really encouraging over the past few years as I've gone down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Um so maybe we could talk now a little bit about like crypto economics and but yeah. why don't you, uh, maybe you could start with what, what is the problem that you're trying to solve with co-create? So I think if you look at the top NFT projects, they have the potential to be the mass market, most influential brands of the future. 
And most of them have been really good at creating a tight, close-knit and exclusive community. Mm -hmm. None of them have really been able to scale. And there's a variety of factors associated with that. But I think one of the main drivers is NFTs are great at creating scarcity of digital assets, which is honestly mind-blowing that you can create scarcity in digital assets. But they that are is not- yeah that is one of the hardest that's the thing you have to really start with with people if, if you want to understand an NFT you've got to understand that it's the first time in history that a digital good can be scarce and it's 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 a very hard thing to get through to people exactly and depending on who you're speaking with like I mean so fungible tokens I feel like the applications within finance um, and the appreciation of it is is really strong within the finance sector. Um, what's so cool is that NFTs, the appreciation and understanding of it is really strong within the artistic and the creative sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have to do the same level of explaining, right? Like once someone gets it, my, my husband, he's a session musician. And so talking with him is fascinating because he doesn't care about DeFi at all. Yeah. But like NFTs and the idea that you can um, uniquely own a work that previously was unownable and therefore was not scarce and therefore was not valued um, is like mind blowing. So I think the the NFTs in and of themselves have been fascinating to me. NFT projects are something where it's like, oh my goodness, there's there's such a core community and a brand at the center, how can that scale? And I don't think you can scale those projects by doing another NFT drop, which is another 10K PFP project that adds another 1500 unique holders. You know, one of, um, I was talking with the leaders of one of the top 10 projects this past week, and he was saying how they're really focused on their core community right now. And I was like, how big is that? How, how do you define that? And how big is it? He was like, so we we define it as our NFT collection holders, and it's about 5,000 people. And that's amazing. If you're thinking about scaling that, scaling it incrementally or linearly doesn't get you very far. And the amazing thing about fungible tokens is they're the exact opposite. They're meant to be scalable. They are divisible. You can buy in at any price. You can buy $1 worth. You can buy $100 worth. You don't have to do all this research on the rarity of it, right? Like you can say, oh, I believe in this project. And so I want to get exposure to that project. And so I think that the combination of NFTs with fungible tokens allows these brands, these decentralized brands of the future to be able to scale their impact and reach. I think the problem is that no one's figured out how an NFT project can do a token that has value, right? Like, and I have nothing but respect for Yuga Labs. Um, They are pushing the boundaries in so many ways and really setting the course for a lot of folks to follow. Um, I think them launching ApeCoin was a huge, um, a, a huge thing for the industry to be able to see how this could work. At the heart of it, I think a lot of people have questions around, well, what is the value of ApeCoin, right? You yeah. can't buy a lot with it. Um, other deeds you bought with, but that was like a one time. Um, there doesn't seem to be any underlying foundation of value for it. It's primarily value by association. And so what we came up with is, If we think NFT projects have the makings of becoming these decentralized, powerful brands of the future, they're going to need a different tool set. 
and they're going to need something that can scale exponentially, not just linearly. And that's going to be a fungible token, but we want them to be able to launch a fungible token that has value that people can rely on. Um, and so what our protocol does is it, it solves for that. It allows NFT projects to harness their royalties to create a foundation of value for their own fungible token. Um, and we think that's going to be the recipe for them going from a few thousand unique collection holders to millions within their audience and wider community. Okay. So in essence, you're using the revenue stream from royalties to kind of underpin a coin that's associated with the NFT project so that that can then be used to further the project and just like kind of like pay for operational expenses, things like that. Is that, do I have that right? Yeah, we, we exactly. We use the value, we use the revenue stream of the NFT royalties to support the value of a token. And we think that then sets off a virtuous cycle, right? Mm -hmm. So if um, every single time one of these NFTs is sold, their royalties are captured and used to purchase the fungible token. And then that project's native token is distributed back to the project as their royalty, but they can also elect to have some of it go to a DAO um, that everyone with the native token is a member of, as well as some to go to NFT collection holders. Um, and then from there, if people are building things, maybe the DAO is investing into the, using the fungible token that they were allocated, they're using it to host events or to do joint ventures with fashion houses or with gaming companies and they're creating value within that ecosystem, that then creates more demand for the NFTs. And more demand for the NFTs results in more demand for the native token with every swap of the royalties into the native token. And so we think that this is not the one-stop solution of if you do this, you now will have an ecosystem with you know thousands of dApps and experiences and metaverses, et cetera. But we think that this is the foundation that allows you to set off that virtuous cycle um, and build with your community um, since they now have a way to, to see part of the upside of that outcome. Yeah. Are you, are you thinking about it in, a, in larger terms as well for like the industry as a whole or like Ethereum as a protocol? Um, because as I mentioned at the top there, you know, for like foundations, at least, you know, it's, it's difficult. Um, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with Gitcoin grants and, you know, there's a lot of giving in the community to sort of keep think, keep money in the bank accounts. Um, but I've always struggled with like, well, why can't we figure this out more natively in crypto? Mm -hmm. You know, like, why are we relying on a sort of TradFi, you know, grant, giving based system for, for some of the most important, you know, utilities out there. And I'm just curious yeah. if you've had any thoughts about that. Yeah, we, we actually think about it quite a lot. So um, grant programs are great in that they allow you to reward contributions. I think where they're limited is that they're entirely manual and they're very trust-based mm -hmm. in some ways. Right. So um, you can't currently build permissionlessly uh, within, let's say this, an NFT ecosystem going with the previous example and expect to be rewarded just based on the value of what you've built, right? Like if you say, hey, I really love doodles 
And I want to create um, an experience where Doodle NFT holders can come and log in and they get access to exclusive merch and we curate maybe community events or um, small group sessions on various topics and bring in artists, whatever. Um, you can't do that and then just say, and I know Doodles will reward me retroactively. It's like you need to potentially go to an apply for a grant from the Doodle Bank, because they do have a community treasury, which is pretty cool. Um, and then go through the process and get it all approved and then get the grant. So you're either waiting and going through this huge like friction and then getting something, or you're doing it permissionlessly, but you have no validation that you'll get rewarded. And so while I think grants will be part of the solution for a while, um, one of the things that we're thinking through is, okay, are there, are is, are there these smart contract components that we can build out incrementally that are able to measure value creation and reward it in a systematized way so that people can build permissionlessly? Because that's what really sets off an ecosystem and that allows doers and builders to just create. Um, we don't have the answer yet, but we have a few of the components that we're starting to build out. And so Part of our protocol includes, you know, launching of the fungible token, coming up with a pro like you can configure your allocations, you can configure your vesting schedules, you can um, determine whether it's inflationary or fixed supply. And underneath all of those quantitative um, measures, we're now thinking through, okay, what are the components of utility, these smart contracts that could add utility incrementally um, and working with top projects to come up with what those should be and then hopefully be able to bring those to life so that over time it can be more, you know, this is the a core a ethos of Web3 is you don't have to trust others. Right. I would love for that to be the case um, with if I create something of value, I can know that I'll be rewarded um, based on some measurement of that value. Yeah, that's great. Great to hear. Are you, how are you thinking about regulation and, and whether you're crossing over into the boundary of, of a security now and, and Gary Gensler at the SEC has definitely got his eye on this. Um, are you yeah. building with that in mind or do you think that you're not going to, you know, uh, get this SEC's attention or what, what are your thoughts there? So I think, um, one, it's very disheartening to see how regulation by enforcement has been the approach saying, going after people when you haven't even clarified the rules and then telling them you broke the rules is just, that that's not the way to foster innovation. Um, and so that's something that I hope the CFTC and the SEC can come together to, to work on and clarify, as well as um, legislators, which there's already been some legislation proposed that are meant to clarify the rules. The rules aren't clear and that's a problem. The way that we are approaching this is taking the existing rules very, very seriously. So specifically the Howey test, um, which defines what a security is, an investment of funds into a common enterprise with the expectation of profits from the um, activities or managerial efforts of a third party. Um, my background prior to this was in private assets and in private securities. And so I have a, an appreciation for what what private securities regulation is meant to solve and it's meant to protect investors. Um, I also think that this is apples and oranges 
right? You can't take 1930s and 40s law and apply it to digital assets in the same way. Maybe it's apples um, and orange groves, right? Yeah, exactly. Howie was based on it, an orange that's grove. That's yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so we're taking it very seriously. We're approaching this in a manner to ensure that nothing that we support directly would meet the bar of the Howey test. Um, and using decentralization as one of those core um, inputs into that process, where if it's not a centralized party that controls this and you're not relying on the managerial efforts of a third party, um, that that would be the way in which these are are clearly within the lines of not being a security. But I think transparently, um, it's just very disheartening that regulatory bodies are not being clear on what the rules are and then going after people retroactively. Yeah. And we just saw, was it last week in the Coinbase insider trading case, they finally named what nine coins that they're saying yeah. are securities and it's in a, in a, in a, in a, you know, in an enforcement action. So yeah, I, I agree. And I, I hear this so often from people who are building in web three that they just, all they want is some clarity and just to, to know how to obey the rules. You know, people want to obey them, but if you don't know what they are, how can you obey them? Exactly. And I will say that I really appreciate that the, the CFTC came out and criticized the SEC, which yeah. is unheard of, like one regulatory body publicly criticizing the other, because um, I think that most digital assets, they should fall under CFTC regulation, right? They're more like commodities than they are securities or equity um, or debt instruments. Um, but uh, I I'm hopeful that there will be progress here. It's getting more and more attention. And having the U.S. be a center of innovation is something that I think benefits um, the United States. And if there is gray area or if there is regulation by enforcement, the winds are going to shift and this innovation is going to happen. It's just not going to happen here, which would be yeah. a, a really sad outcome. Yeah, it's even spicier when you remember that Gary Gensler used to lead the CFTC, you know, for years. Right? And and so, <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. I actually wasn't putting that together. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Well, let me let, let me switch gears and just ask you. Um, you know, this is something we're trying to to highlight at the central as much as possible. But what's it like for you having been um, a female co-founder in this space? Has it? I know there are a lot of horror stories and there's a lot of dudes out there. Has it, has it been hard for you, or how how would you characterize like the ups and downs of that? Yeah, so I will say that my experience is not at all what I think the norm is, um, and it also wasn't my, what I would have expected coming in. Um, I've had, I've been very fortunate in that I've had an incredible experience, and frankly, I think a lot of this is attributable to having someone like Chris Dixon um, back us and and have A16Z Crypto lead our round. It just creates this immediate credibility um, when. I was going out um, and leading the fundraise. Um, A16Z Crypto was actually the first um, partner pitch really? um, session that I had. Yeah, it was. An, a you don't crazy... go small, do you? You just like, let's go straight to Harvard. Let's go straight to Chris <laughs> Dixon. Yeah, it was. I mean, honestly, in retrospect, that probably wasn't the wisest thing where it was my first partner pitch was to the entire partnership at A16Z Crypto. And I remember Ben Horowitz was on the call and he was like, hi, Taryn, I'm I'm Ben. I'm like, yeah, no shit. You're like, everyone knows who you are. <laughs> um, and uh, and they 
quickly committed to leading the round. And so from there, and they, they took a very large percentage of the round. Um, and so from there, my priority actually became, I want web three native angels, and I want um, the remainder to be filled out by web three angels, as well as funds that are led by women and people of color. And so I think for that reason, I've had a very different experience because I had such a strong anchor. And then I intentionally chose people um, that aligned with my value set and what I wanted to see in the space. Um, and so for instance, uh, like Rogue Women Ventures is on the cap table, um, Rare Breed uh, Ventures led by Matt Conwell is on the cap table, Muse Capital, who are led by two amazing women are on the cap table. Basis set ventures like intentionally chose investors who are um, led by women or people of color because I do think it's a problem in this space. And so I'm in a little bit of a nice bubble or echo chamber, but I've, I will say that on the hiring front, that's where it's been um, difficult. We are um, hiring across a variety of roles. We opened up a, a, a job posting for a front end um, engineer. And I think we got 200 applications within 48 hours. And of that, less than five were women. And it's wow. just like, where are my women at? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're trying to build something different. So that's been the hard part, but the investing process was actually really positive. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. Um, and yeah, I think it is very possible to find women and people of color in the space it's just they're they're there it's just you know you have to make an effort to do it and mm -hmm. and that's you know if somebody says there aren't women in this space that they're they're not really paying attention because the, there are a lot of women and a lot of people of color and it's it's a global thing so you know um it doesn't always have to be you know another white guy um but absolutely so good for you on on like trying to be the change you want to see in the world. That's, that's encouraging. Yeah. And I will say that there are um, three different groups that we've connected with uh, Eve Wealth, um, Boys Club, We3. These are all um, web three communities that are focused on women, non-binary individuals and getting them into this space or fostering their success in this space. And so those groups are out there. They have job boards you can share jobs with to really make it so that, you know, you get in front of the right candidate, that you get in front of a diverse set of candidates. Yeah. Yeah. I know Eve Wealth. Um, I went through the Seed Club round with them. Um, oh, amazing. So they're great. Yeah. Really yeah. Cool. Yeah. 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 Um, you mentioned this one uh, just in passing, but I wanted to kind of touch on like, What's it like in Nashville? And, and it makes more sense that now I know that your husband's a session musician. So was was that the reason you wanted to move back or move to Nashville or how, and like, what's the tech scene like there? So my husband and I, um, we were in Boston for two years for HBS and then we decided to move to New York. Um, that's where a lot of FinTech was. Also, we thought that would be a good location for his career because he mostly does um, recordings or session work uh, for new records. And um, we were there for about three and a half, four years. And we just got tired of being in New York. We just didn't want to be there anymore. It's a hard place to live. It's an incredible city. Um, but neither of us were from there. And we would constantly hear this thing of, ah, you know, New York's really hard, but my family is here. And so I could never leave. And it's got so many benefits. And, was, and we were like, our family isn't here. Why are we? <laughs> if this isn't, you know, what gives us energy? Because 
we actually, um, we enjoy spending a lot of time at home. And if you enjoy being a homebody, don't live in New York City. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And very so good we, advice. <laughs> we looked at a few different cities, LA, Austin, and Nashville. We were prioritizing lower cost of living, warmer weather, music for him and tech for me. And frankly, before we visited Nashville, I had more or less written it off. I was like, I've lived, I'm from the South. I have a complicated relationship with the South. There's no tech scene in Nashville. Like, what am I, I understand why it would be good for him, but I just, I, that doesn't seem like that would be a fit for us. And we visited LA, we loved it. Um, but we loved areas that were more inland and all the tech jobs were in like Santa Monica, Venice. Yeah. Um, we visited Austin and we we're like, holy smokes, this is really hot. One and two, it's so far away from everything. And three, a lot of the tech was late stage. Like Apple has a campus there. IBM has a campus there. It wasn't early stage. Um, and granted, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this podcast would come back and say, no, you just don't know the scene. And that's probably true, but that's how it felt. And then we visited Nashville and I reached out to, um, I got connected to a local VC here. Um, and she, I met with her to ask her what the tech scene was like. And she kind of showed me around. I met with a local um, revenue executive at a tech firm and we were touring the area and we came across an area in East Nashville that felt a lot like where we were moving from in Brooklyn. We're just like, this just feels right. And I don't know what it's going to mean for our careers, but it just feels right. And, um, and so we got up and moved in the early fall of 2019 Everyone thought we were crazy. I kept my job in New York. I was flying back every week. My husband wasn't doing any country music hardly at the time. And he was recording from his home studio. So he could have been based anywhere. And in retrospect, it's just been, again, we got incredibly lucky. COVID hit six months later. No one cares where you're based anymore. Um, Co-create, we're building our company fully remote. And there's a small but growing uh, Web3 community of founders and a lot of them are founding teams are here and their their dispersed teams are everywhere else. So it's not as though the whole company is based here, but I'm actually grabbing drinks tomorrow with four other Web3 founders that are yeah. located here in Nashville and you would just never know it. Yeah. Um, and I think the upside is because it's small, it's more dense, it's, it's more connected. Um, yeah, and it's fun to see this grow as well. Outside those like Web3 founders, um, when you're just out and about in Nashville and talking to regular folks and you, they find out you're in crypto, how are you being received there? Like, are, what, where do you think we are in that kind of um, sense? Yeah. So the people we hang out with mostly are either from my side of the world, which is like tech folks, um, or they're from my husband's side of the world, which are artists, creators, session musicians. Um, and the cool thing is both sides think that crypto is neat. <laughs> so it's like, we're hitting the sweet spot. All the tech folks are like, Ooh, that's so interesting. I mean, granted, probably now that we've had this retraction, maybe less so, um, but they thought uh, I get a good reception, a lot of questions. Mostly I just get a lot of questions still trying to understand how it works. And within the artist or creative community, you know, I think also a lot of questions, but also at times there's a very positive reaction of, wow, this is a way for creators to monetize that hasn't existed before. And for a long time, creators um, and artists have gotten the short end of the sick. Yeah. Uh, and so that feels good. I think the flip side is at times they 
question whether or not is is this just a money grab you know how does it work the the uncertainty can lead to some skepticism as well but primarily it's positive yeah that's great um and i think for somebody who's curious like yourself and disciplined like yourself i mean there's no better place to be than in crypto right now i, yeah. I find it just endlessly fascinating and for the most part, the community is really wonderful and, and open. And um, I think I think it's good that we've had another downturn. You know, I, I think it, you got to kind of take some of the air out of it every so often. And just like what you said earlier is that DeFi summer kind of like got you into it. And that kind of came out of nowhere because people didn't realize that when the crash happened, you know, people just kept building and they just mm -hmm. kind of kept doing what they wanted to do. And I think. I don't see why that wouldn't be the case right now as well. So I'm really excited to see when we come out of this in the next six months or a year or whatever, like what's the next, you know, what's the next NFT thing? Like, you know, it's going to be fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's really positive for the industry overall as well, especially when I put myself in the shoes of, okay, if I'm an NFT project, I've had some success. I'm trying to think of how to scale. And now um, in, in order to scale, I'm potentially launching my own native token. If you launch that token and it's going to your core community of true believers, though that is a much softer and safer landing than launching in a volatile market where there's going to be a ton of traders who are just speculating yeah. on your token. And so I actually think that for projects that are thinking about launching a token, do it in a down market, do it in a bear market, right? Because you're going to be launching something with the intent to continue building it over time. Um, and if you launch it and there's just a ton of speculation, it could create a downward spiral that is hard to recover from. Yeah, that's great advice. Anybody listening, uh, I, <laughs> you should heed it. Um, well, Tara, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for for your time and, and sharing all those stories, um, passing the CIA, uh, background check and uh, just uh, winging it at Harvard and, and making your mom <laughs> sad. I hope she's not sad anymore now that you're she's like- She's not sad anymore. She good. just, she she was very concerned about, you know, given her life's course where there wasn't stability always, she values stability much more than I do. And yeah. so she was like, you've got a good job. Don't leave it for school. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, again, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on to uh, Decent People, Tara. It's been really great having you. It's been my pleasure, Matt. So nice to speak with you. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L dot I-O. And on Twitter at Decential. Have a great day.